Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca. This is Courtney, and I'm so happy you're joining us for this episode of In Doubt. We recently had Tony Ranke as our guest, and if you want to check it out, it's episode 203, and he's with us one more time to talk about his latest book, Competing Spectacles, Treasuring Christ in the Media Age. So the focus of today's conversation is taking a look at what pulls at us in today's culture that distracts us in the everyday. Whether you're listening on your drive, at the gym, or at home, no matter where you're listening, actually— I hope that this episode grabs your attention enough to make a difference or at least ask yourself some important questions. So here's the episode with Isaac and Tony Ranke. With me today is Tony Ranke, and my name is Isaac, one of the hosts of In Doubt. Tony is an author, he's a journalist, a not-for-profit journalist, and he's a senior writer for Desiring God. And you may have heard his voice before because he's the host of the Ask Pastor John podcast with John Piper. So I'd like to welcome you again to Endow, Tony. I appreciate it. Thanks, Isaac. For those listening, we've had the opportunity to already have a conversation with Tony on his book that he wrote some years ago called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. So we had a discussion about that book. We talked about digital detox, different things like that. So I'd encourage you to go uh, check out our archive and find that and take a listen. Now, Tony, though, for those who perhaps haven't listened to that previous conversation we had and they're unfamiliar with with who you are, I'm just wondering if you could introduce yourself. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, my name is Tony Ranke, a nonprofit Christian journalist. I live in uh, Phoenix, Arizona now with my wife, and we have three kiddos, uh, an 18-year-old son, a 14-year-old daughter, and a 12-year-old son. And I'm the author of uh, five books, two on technology and media, and I work for DesiringGod.org, as you said, and I host the uh, popular Ask Pastor John podcast with John Piper. And that uh, that podcast is now 1,400 episodes in and uh, I had no idea it would continue to go after the first year, but here we are about to turn seven years old on January 11th. So it's been a lot of fun working with Pastor John on that project. Yeah, that's so good. Um, and and just to ask, do you think your 18 year old's going to kind of get at you for calling him a kiddo on uh, <laughs> on this? I don't know what their temperaments are, but uh, anyways, I just thought uh, I'd let you know. Yeah, it's a he's a he's now a man, just turned 18. <laughs> so it's it's hard to yeah, it's like. Yeah, he's a he's a man now. Yeah, it go. is hard. Okay. It's hard because it's it's never been that way. Okay, yeah. Okay, so you've redeemed that. That's good. Um, and, and Tony, can you just share a little bit about your own uh, testimony of coming to faith in Jesus? Yeah, so I was a um, a good, obedient uh, Lutheran, and I was that way all my life. Went to church every Sunday, um, got good grades, uh, obeyed my parents. And uh, did what I thought was all the right things. I was baptized as an infant. I was uh, confirmed at 13, kind of um, uh, was the good kid. And then it was at the age of 21 that I realized that I was actually uh, a sinner in need of grace, that I couldn't save myself by my own self-righteousness. And that happened in a, uh, a sermon on Luke 18 on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that uh, um, hit me just like a freight train at age 21 and uh, changed everything for me. Yeah, that's so good. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, uh, Tony, you've, you've recently, like very recently, written a book called Competing Spectacles. 
Um, now, for those uh, of us that have no idea and we haven't seen any book trailers or any summaries of that book whatsoever, uh, what is the theme of this book and what do you mean by spectacles? Yeah, so a spectacle is a moment in time of varying length in which a collective gaze is fixed on something specific. Uh, could be a, an image, could be an event, could be a Twitter moment. Uh, a spectacle is something that captures human attention, um, an instant when our eyes and our brain uh, focuses and fixates on something that's projected at us. Um, in an outraged society like ours, spectacles are often controversies. So the latest scandal in sports, in entertainment, or politics, I think there's some uh, political controversies going on these days. Uh, you know, a spark, a little tweet just grows into a viral flame on social media, and it ignites into millions of, of feeds of users. That's a spectacle. In our delete culture, uh, delete culture itself makes for captivating captivating spectacle, sort of the, the pit, grab the pitchforks and let's go get somebody and take them out. And uh, as our media gets faster and faster, those spectacles become smaller and smaller. So the most minuscule public slip of the tongue or passive aggressive celebrity comment or hypocritical political image, those become spectacles in and of themselves. And so often the most uh, viral social media spectacles are often, you know, very spicy tales that are later exposed to be, you know, fake, false news. So whether it's true or false or fiction, a spectacle is some moment uh, captured that holds together a collective gaze. And that's the focus of, of this book. So a spectacle, I mean, this is very, very broad in general when you start to press into it. A spectacle can come as a, a brilliant photograph, an eye-catching billboard, a creative animation, a magazine centerfold, a witty commercial, a music video. Uh, it can be an advertisement. It can be a sarcastic anti-advertisement. We're seeing lots of those now, like KFC is like making these fake ads. Like, the, like we know you're watching an ad, so let's be in on the joke. It's kind of like this, you know, like they're, you know, elbowing us in the side saying, ha look, watch, we're making an advertisement and you know we're making an advertisement and we're telling you we're making, you know, it's like this big inside joke. And that happens with sitcoms too, even movies about movies. So spectacles go meta. You know, TV shows about TV shows, ads about ads, movies about movies. And spectacles are this sort of ambitious, uh, in one sense, they're, they can become this ambitious video game landscape in, in video games. I mean, it, we're starting to see that now, just some amazing immersive gaming uh, technology that is making video games more more. Uh, addictive than they've ever been before and more mesmerizing too. So it could be that. It could be just a sports clip of an athlete's glory or injury. Uh, it could be a viral gif on social media. All of that is spectacle. And our culture is awash in spectacles. So, so awash that we're seeing competing spectacles. So there's huge competition to grab as many eyes as possible. So the president's tweets get more insane. Uh, the pranks get more insane. The daredevil tricks become more insane. There's stiff competition for eyes in this attention market, as it's been called. And uh, the competition presses us into competition for our attention. And also, here's the catch. God claims our attention, too. And that's where the spiritual attention comes into play. Interesting. Okay, well, I want to I get to that more spiritual aspect in a little bit here. But before we jump there, you say early on in your book, quote, spectacles can lead us to be self-centered or self-forgetting or others-focused, end quote. And now when you read that, and I, I mean, you obviously give some more context there as well, but this implies the very influential power um, that spectacles can have on either the person that is the center of the spectacle or just it, the many eyes that are, that are watching. So I'm just wondering if you could um, elaborate on the power of spectacles in our lives. 
Yeah, so that argument there in the book is um, I'm talking about the Super Bowl, which is a mass spectacle that that gathers our attention in different ways. And so um, if if you go to the stadium live and in person, you're inside the stadium roaring with, you know, 60,000 people. So you're viewing the spectacle live and in person. But you can also watch that game live and remotely inside your living room with six friends watching the big Super Bowl. Or you can also watch highlight clips of the Super Bowl the next day on demand on your phone by yourself. So spectacles can uh, gather together huge crowds. They can also be taken in in smaller crowds, and they can be taken in in isolation. That's basically the only point I'm trying to make there is that it can be spectacles can be all three live and in person, live and remote, on demand, and in isolation. So what I'm saying there is that. When I define spectacles, I'm not saying that everybody's looking at the same thing at the same time, because you can now look at a spectacle on demand uh, and offset it in in the time and space. That's all the, the the point I'm really trying to make there. But what's interesting about the Super Bowl is it's a prime example of just how popular spectacles overlap. Uh, so they don't just compete for our attention; they coalesce their powers to create an even more captivating spectacle. Such that uh, you know the, the Super Bowl becomes a hybrid of athletic spectacles on the field, celebrity spectacles on the sidelines, and then entertainment spectacles at halftime, and then with advertising spectacles all over the place and in between all the play action. So all of this together generates a mass interest for the latest consumables, for foods, for devices, for video games, for Hollywood movie releases. All of these big cultural players... Uh, the big cultural spectacle makers, they meet at the Super Bowl and feed off one another to create this four-hour layered multi-feast for the eyes. And so spectacles spectacles are becoming a huge industry that, especially when you watch the Super Bowl, you see so many different layers of them coming together that it's like it's it's the prime place to point and say, you want to know what it means to live in the, the 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 age of spectacles? Look at the Super Bowl because that's where they all meet. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And you say then, and I think most of us um, are kind of already understanding this a little bit more, but you also say in your book, you know, quote, spectacles want something from us, yeah. end quote. So help help us understand that. I mean, if these if these big companies like Nike and, the, you know, all these Budweiser, if they're, they're you know, they probably hired uh, someone called the marketer, but they're really the person that needs to create a, the biggest spectacle, right? Yes. Uh, they, right. Want, they want something from us. So yeah, elaborate on that. Yes. Yeah, that's right. As we con- we consume spectacles, so in a sense, we, we that's our first relationship to spectacles is that we consume them, but we don't merely ingest them; we respond to them. And this is kind of the aha moment that I had five or six years ago. I was like, "Oh, I need to write a book on this because when we see a spectacle, most likely that spectacle wants something from us. So visual images awaken the motives in our hearts. Uh, images tug at the strings of our actions." Images want us to celebrate them. Images want our awe. Images want our affection. Images want our time, our approval, our buy-in, our respreading power on social media. Or maybe they just want our wallets. They want our money. Um, so you can think of this as the, with, with the porn industry. The porn industry wants your lust. Um, if you look at YouTube, YouTubers will give you new spectacles in exchange for your views and your likes. Uh, Netflix will flat out give you new spectacles because they want your most precious commodity. They want your time. And Netflix has come out and actually said in public their greatest enemy 
is not HBO. It is not other streaming services. Netflix's greatest enemy is our sleep. So Netflix is after our sleep. They're after our time, our wakefulness. They're trying to get us to stay up later to bend shows. Uh, politicians want our votes. The gaming industry wants our money. And so from each of them come this vast array of eye-grabbing spectacles, and each demands something from us. Um, another way to say this is uh, uh, attention is the currency of power. Attention is the currency of power. The more plays or likes you give something, the more it grows in power. So there's a social dynamic to this. If you want to make something trend on social media, you're giving it incredible power in our society because you're giving it attention. And if enough people give something enough attention, that attention gets turned into power. Um, so if you make something viral, you've accumulated power that you then can use to get something from uh, from an audience. Again, that might be votes if you're a politician or money if you're trying to sell something. But attention is the currency of power. That's what it means to live in an attention market like ours. So what are these spectacles offering us and maybe beyond just the the material thing like obviously it's not just the 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 can of beer from Budweiser but what are they trying to offer us through their spectacles well they're trying to offer us a, in a lot of a lot of cases they're trying to offer us an image uh, an identity that we want we talked about this a little bit in the in the last uh, in the last episode that we recorded is you know if you want to get if you if you have friends in the goth community and you want to be pulled into that community and loved by that community you're going to dress a certain way you're going to put on a costume that's black you're going to wear goth clothing because that's you're looking for your love from that from those people um he, this is another one of the fascinating things about the spectacles that we see in the Super Bowl or on TV like have you ever asked yourself the question like why have i seen the same advertisement like a 100 times like seriously, there are certain ads by certain companies that we see a hundred times, and we see them. You know, those those are the ads that are launched at the Super Bowl. So you see the first one at the Super Bowl, and then you just boom, boom, boom. For years, you see the same images, same advertisement over and over, and that's called cultural imprinting. And the reason why advertisers do this is because the assumption is the more somebody sees an advertisement, the more they assume that the image presented in that advertising has been taken uh, has has taken on a normative place in society. So if I've seen an advertisement for 20, 30, 40 times, I can assume that everybody in this world, everybody in my culture has the same assumption about what that product offers. And so if I buy that product and if I use that product, then I can assume that the people around me are going to view me in a certain light. So that's called cultural imprinting. Um, and that's just a dynamic that works more broadly in a lot of advertising. The more you see the ad, the more you assume that this thing, like if it's an Apple device, you know, if you own an Apple device, you are creative, you are uh, streamlined, you are cutting edge, you uh, are aesthetically, uh, you have an aesthetic appetite. Like Apple products carry a certain cultural imprinting with them that to be seen with an Apple device means that the culture is going to view you that way. And so, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of a long answer, but cultural imprinting is something I take up in the book and, and talk about because I think it's uh, one of the fascinating things. So we're trying to fit in. We're trying to um, uh, have a certain identity that other people see in us. Um, it, it, so it's a, it's, it's a very complex relationship that we have with spectacles. Yeah, no, that that's really helpful. So yeah, like you said, spectacles are offering us uh, this image of where other people can look at us and they say, wow, they're they're cultured, they're they're cool, they have yeah, this, and right. that's what we've 
we've given them our attention, we've given them our money, we've given them our, our power because our view of the spectacle, and they've offered to us this image that we now mm-hmm. get to project to others. So I guess before we, we, this is maybe a good way to slowly get into this greater spectacle that you talk about, mm-hmm. why is it that when we do buy into the what these spectacles offer, we are never fully fully satisfied? Why is it that... I you know I have my MacBook, but then when the newest one yeah. comes out, I'm like, oh well, I'm I'm old news. Like, why is it that we never are fully satisfied when we buy into? Yeah, I'm exactly wired the same way too, and it's because the Bible says that Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. That's Proverbs twenty-seven twenty. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. So the graveyard, Sheol, is like a graveyard. It's never full of bodies because Sheol is an open mouth, always consuming life, day and night consuming life. So too are our eyes. Our eyes are insatiable. They're always roving, never satisfied by anything in this world. Our fallen eyes tug us towards death. That's what that that passage is, is, is talking about, which means our great enemy is not external seducers. Our, our greatest enemy is not the spectacle makers. Our greatest enemy is our own insatiable eye lust that leads to death. That's Proverbs 27, 20. That's what it's saying. And that's absolutely frightening. And so when you look at, um, I mean, another passage that comes to mind is Numbers fifteen thirty nine, where God is telling Moses what to say to the people of Israel. And it, it, he says, you know, to remind them that they're not going to follow the will of God. They're not going to follow my will and my word because, quote, they're following after their own eyes. End quote. So if you fill your eyes with the spectacles of this world, you will grow deaf to the voice of God. And so the psalmist, this is why the psalmist cries out to God in Psalm uh, 119.37, I think it is. The psalmist says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. So the fullness of life is not the fullness of eyes. That's what our culture says. If you want, you want full life, fill your eyes. That's what our culture tells us. And God's word says, no, fullness of life is not fullness of eyes. And that is the, the competition that we feel because we can fill our eyes with endless spectacles in every direction. In the end, it's just a feeding on death. It will not fill us. It will not give us life. And so that is just reiterated over and over. And this is what it means to have faith, to live by faith, is to not live by spectacle. Yeah, yeah, that's so good, Tony. So I think this is a good time then. Like, what is this beauty of the greater spectacle that you as a Christian and your ministry that you want to really, yeah, like, you know, help people? You're pointing to another spectacle, one that's actually going to last. Yeah, absolutely. So spoiler alert, book is in two sections. The first half is the age of spectacle and the second half is the the, spe- the divine spectacle that I'm talking about. And so the response to the spectacle age is not to just throw away all spectacles. Um, because into this spectacle-loving world with all of its spectacle makers and all of its spectacle-making industries and technologies came the greatest spectacle ever devised in the mind of God and brought about in world history. That is the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ crucified is the hinge of all history. It's the point of contact between B.C. and A.D. It's where all time collides. It's where all human spectacles meet one unsurpassed cosmic divine spectacle. And so from this moment on, from the cross on, God intends all human gaze to center itself on this climactic moment. Um, It's as if God says to the world, this is my beloved son crucified for you, a spectacle for your hearts forever. And so by design, by God's divine design, 
Christians are pro-spectacle. And we give our entire lives to the spectacle of Christ crucified, which is historically past, and it's, it's presently invisible. We can't see it. But this is the divine spectacle that's at the center of the Christian life. This is the ballast in our boat. And only by faith can we, we see this ultimate spectacle. And, and in him, we see that this is the life that I now live. The life I live is now the life that he's given me in his cross. And so the, the supreme spectacle of, of the cross brings a collision with all of the spectacles of this world. And we're caught in the middle. So I have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me, as the Apostle Paul talks about. Our response to the ultimate spectacle of the cross is what defines us, and that puts us in direct tension with an age that is driven by what you can see. And so, depending on how you see it, the cross is one of two things. It's, it's one of two spectacles. Either it was the mocking of a faux fake king, or it was the coronation of the true king of the universe. The cross was either a tragic misunderstanding and a ruthless murder of an innocent man, or it was pre-planned, spectacle orchestrated by God to display his beauty unsurpassed to the world. And so, you know, the spectacle of Christ is, is driven home in conversion when we look back on our life and we see that our sins are what put Christ on that tree. And he who loves me, I have pierced. Now, to unfallen eyes and to redeemed eyes, even, the, the, the cross was the spectacle that this world has never and will never rival in weight or significance or glory. It is the divine spectacle of the cosmos. So Christians aren't anti-spectacle. What we're saying is God has a spectacle that orients and centers our life, and that spectacle then creates tension, competing spectacles into the Christian life. Yeah, that's so good. And, you know, help us out here because some some of us may be thinking about this and, uh, you know, maybe we haven't uh, delved down too deep to kind of understand some of the underpinnings. So uh, obviously we weren't there at the cross. We we didn't see and we're thinking with our eyeballs, we didn't see Christ crucified uh like we can see the 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 commercials at the super bowl like we can see uh some of the spectacles today yeah. so h- how does that work do we have to you know go see watch the passion of the christ like is that the way <laughs> like h- how does how does that work how do we see but we can't see this great spectacle exactly this is the we have to see as god sees which is faith we don't see as the world sees which is sight right now god has postponed sight. One day our eyes are going to be filled to the brim with visible spectacle. When we see the glorified Jesus Christ and we see him face to face, from that moment on, we won't need faith. We won't need hope because we'll be in the presence of the glorified Jesus Christ. And so there's coming a day when we will have our eyes satisfied, completely satisfied by a spectacle, a visible spectacle. But right now God has chosen faith to be the way in which we see this spectacle. So we see as God sees, not as man sees. Now, the interesting thing about going to watch The Passion or watch some movie like that is a lot of the dynamics that make the cross the cross are invisible even in the visible display. Mm. So most most movies that present the death of Jesus Christ present it as just a tragedy of an innocent man dying a painful death. When in fact, you have to understand what was happening on the spiritual dimension. You have to understand that God was pouring out his righteous wrath on Jesus Christ in the place of sinners. You can't, you cannot picture that in a movie. I mean, you, you could try, but, but it would be very hard to put a visible, physical uh, representation of what it would mean for Christ to drink the dregs of God's wrath. 
You can't picture that. So there's a even if you were standing there watching the the cross unfold, there's a there's a spectacle element to it that's still invisible. There's a spiritual reality there that 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 you can't see but by faith. And so it all comes back to this faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And so that's part of the ways to 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 look at this. And again, it's not saying that God is anti-sight because when you look at the beatific vision, when you look at that moment when we'll see Jesus as he is fully manifested in his glory, we will be changed instantaneously. We will be made perfect. We will be made sinless, actually sinless in that moment. And and that is a sight that we live towards. So, I could waste my life binging Netflix. Or I could look forward to that future sight of seeing Jesus Christ face to face, and 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 I'm not saying that you can't have, in a sense, both. Like God, I don't think God is anti-spectacle in the sense that you can't watch movies, you can't watch live sports, you can't. I'm I'm not making that argument at all. I'm saying what is the true the true spectacle that's got your heart? Because if it's the next Bears game and it's not Christ, then then we got to talk, you know. Yeah. And, you know, as you as you share this, uh, something that's been really helping me out, encouraging me lately is I just feel like I, I keep seeing this in, in, in the Bible because you're, you're talking about this idea of um, seeing with eyes of faith, but yes. you can only have faith in something that you that you know or have been told or have been promised. Right. And you get that through good old black and white words. That's how you... That's how you understand what you need to have faith in or someone's told you. So you've heard it through communication, through words. And as I've been reading, something that really caught me is, you know, reading Deuteronomy 4 and Moses is telling the second generation Israelites uh, at the plains of Moab before they go in the promised land. And he says, he's recounting uh, their parents' experience at Mount Horeb, at Mount Sinai. And he says, you did not see uh, God, you did not see Yahweh. You, didn't, you saw no form, but you only heard words. And the very next chapter, he recounts the same the same event again. Then he said, you met God face to face. And it just, it's this, it seems like a paradox. Like, what do you mean? You, you saw no form, but you saw him face to face. And and all throughout, I've just been so encouraged that we do, you do see, it's just a different kind of, different kind of sight. So we can see, like you said, with the eyes of faith, just like you're seeing him face to face, but it's, it's through hearing uh, the word of God. So I, I, That's I, so good. I find yeah. that very encouraging. The Apostle Paul even pushes this a little bit further in Galatians 3.1 when he says, when he tells the church in Galatia, he, he's like, why, why are you turning away from the gospel when, quote, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? So he's telling them, uh, how can you turn away from this cross when you've seen the cross? You, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified in front of your eyes. Now, what the crazy thing about that is probably nobody in the Galatian church was there to physically see Jesus crucified. Right, right. So the question is, what in the world is Paul talking about there? And there's different theories on this, but I mean, he he's literally saying it's as if Christ was crucified. He uses the word for like we would use for billboard. Like publicly portrayed as a billboard, Christ was crucified. You saw him like a billboard crucified, and I think what he's he's speaking metaphorically there. He's he's speaking uh, symbolically of his preaching. Like his preaching was so uh, so sincere and it was so affectionate that to hear a a really good cross centered sermon is as if you've beheld the spectacle. Yeah, that's so good. That I think is the only way you can understand Galatians three one so vividly, so impressively that the hearers imagine the matter to have happened right before their eyes. 
And so that's, I mean, I've got, there's great albums that preach, you know, Christ and great sermons that preach Christ. And in a sense, it's more than I'm just hearing about the cross. I'm in a sense, like I'm beholding the spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. So in in light of that, Tony, and as we slowly start to close here, what are different ways that you've learned in your own life to give more attention to this to this greater spectacle over and above the many you know very easily accessible and free yeah. uh, spectacles of our world, especially in light of the fact that so many of those easily accept uh, you know accessible spectacles are literally for our eyeballs and they're very easy yeah. to ingest. Right. Whereas this greater one is it takes a little bit it's yes. something else. So yeah, give us some of those. Well, I you know I talked about this in the last podcast, so I'll just kind of talk about it again. I mean, because attention is the currency of power. Uh, in our uh, attention market, the more plays or likes uh, means the more power you give something. And so a digital detox is what I talked about last time. And I'll just reiterate it again. I mean, a digital detox is so important because it's a withdrawal from this power currency system. Um, it's, a, it's a type of fasting. It's a way, you know, when we talk about food, we talk about, you know, food is not my God. Food is not my comfort. Food is not the basis of my happiness. God is. And so we use food rightly when God is at the center of our lives, not food. And so in this attention-driven market of this glut of digital images, you can imagine how uh, fasting becomes even more urgent. You know, fasting from our smartphones, fasting from screens, fasting from Netflix is a pretty countercultural way of saying um, the endless spectacles of digital media available to me on my phone or on my screens, they're not my God. The sort of self-affirmation that I seek, the glory that I seek, the, uh, the joy that I seek on screens is not the basis of my happiness. My true happiness is deeper than that. It's, it's based in God's acceptance of me and my union with Jesus Christ, his son. And so I think going back to that, I'm a broken record. Like digital detoxes are essential. People probably won't even know what a broken record is, right? (laughs) I'm dating myself. Uh, You know, broken record is where the needle gets stuck and you keep hearing the same same line over and over and over and over again. But, you know, I, I think it needs to be said that digital detoxes are essential um, because we, we have these spectacles. We have 3D movies. We have... CGI, which is just amazing, amazing technology. We have these these landscapes in gaming that are just stunning, and they're good gifts. And when we when we take a break from them, we say to God, "You are greater than these spectacles. You are greater than this gaming landscape. You're greater than my video games. You're greater than Netflix. You're greater than the movies that I enjoy." Um, it's a way of saying, like all fasting, it's a sanctified gratitude. It's a way to ensure that our lives center on the gift giver and not on his proliferation of gifts. Yeah, that's so good. And, you know, I'm just thinking about those listening today. Maybe they're on the bus. Maybe they're cleaning their bathroom. Maybe they're just with their headphones Mm, on, wherever they, I mean, this is where I listen to podcasts too, right? So um, if they're listening and right now in their life, they just, they can't do uh, digital detox. What's something they can do today that maybe could grow that captivation of this greater, greater spectacle? Yeah, I think the the immediate thing we can do is to guard our affections with everything. Uh, spectacles want our affections, and Christ wants your affections too. And and this is competition. And we can take time. A lot of times we 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 just we have so many spectacles, and media is so loud in our lives. We don't take time to ask ourselves, what is it that's really driving my life right now? What is it that my heart most wants right now? And we can do that. In the quiet moments uh, of our lives, we can make quiet moments to think this way about. Does Christ really have my attention? 
You know, he died for me. He, he was buried for me. He was raised to eternal life for me. He bought, he bought my eternal joy. Uh, there's nothing, I know by faith, there's nothing more thrilling, nothing greater. There's no greater spectacle. But does he really have my heart? What is it that really has my heart? And that should drive us to pray. That should drive us to commune with God and say, you know what, God, I, I see all these spectacles and my eyes are, are captivated by all these spectacles. I want to be a, a man of God, a woman of God, a child of God who has my heart riveted on the spectacle of your son, Jesus Christ, because he, you've told, you told us he is the most beautiful thing in the universe. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus leaves that highest accolade of what delights him for his son. And I want that to be true of my heart. Um, And too often it's not. And so that's immediate. Like if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're about to hit uh, pause, it's, it's about to be over, take time to ask the Lord to expose what is it that I'm really after. And that's hard and that's intimidating. Um, but it is it is so easy to drift away from the greatest spectacle of the universe. If we neglect, if our attention neglects Christ, we will drift away from him. That's what Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 is all about. When our attention neglects Christ, we will drift away from him. And this drift is felt most clearly when we find ourselves always seeking after a new thrill in our media. Uh, we lose our interest in the person of Christ, declining interest in the Bible. We yawn through good Christ-centered sermons. We, we sleep right through the Lord's table spiritually. You know, we're not thinking about what this represents. And so Christ grows boring compared to the latest digital thrills. So what do we do? We pump new thrills into our worship services to try and compete with the volume of digital thrills of our age, right? But we're really only spotlighting the decay of our holy affections because we've grown bored with Christ. And to be bored with Christ is to be disconnected with the greatest thrill of the cosmos, disconnected from God's purpose for this creation, which is a theater to display the worth and beauty of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. So there's no greater catastrophic loss imaginable to the soul than to grow weary of Jesus Christ, the spectacle of all spectacles. And if I'm right, if this is true, and I think it is, this type of catastrophic loss is accelerated in a media age like ours that inundates us with 360 degrees of digital images coming at us 24-7. So that's what's at stake. Um, and so getting very practical, it's just like, let's take time to see, like, Lord, expose to me what is it that truly drives my life. Yeah, that's so good. And, you know, it reminds me when you said, you know, Netflix's greatest enemy is sleep. Well, maybe yes. the greatest enemy of all you know, spectacle makers of this world are our affections for Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. It absolutely yeah. will be the case. Yep. Well, I think this is a great place to end this conversation. So Tony, I just want to thank you so much again for taking the time to chat with us. Oh, it's my joy. Let's do this again. It's so good that we could have Tony Ranke join us. And I hope that through this episode, you'll be able to take some time to think about what kind of person you're trying to be in culture or what spectacles draw you away from Jesus. If you'd like to find out more information about Tony's book that we talked about, you can go to his website at TonyRanke.com or check out wherever books are sold. And if you'd like to follow Tony on social media, we'll have his links up on the episode page online, along with anything that we've talked about in this episode. Check back with us for next week's episode, where Daniel will be talking with Peter Yoon, who's a next-gen pastor. The two of them are discussing the impact that summer camp can have on kids, youth, and young adults alike. So I hope that you join us for that episode, too. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, 
subscribe on iTunes and Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 